Hello, listeners, and welcome to Digital Buzz Radio, the podcast of the Georgetown ISD Digital Learning Team, where we are navigating innovation with you. Hey, listeners, welcome to the second episode of Digital Buzz Radio. I'm Amy Heil, and I'm here today with fellow digital learning coaches, Heather Solis and Sandy Kendall. On today's episode of Digital Buzz Radio, we will be talking about digital citizenship. So the idea for this podcast came to me because our district is now one-to-one with devices and our students are accessing information online more than ever. And being a good digital citizen not only includes being kind and respectful online, but it also includes building digital literacy skills to navigate the vast world of online information. Amy, I'm so glad that you thought of digital citizenship as the theme for this podcast. It's It's been a passion of mine for a long time, and I can go on and on about it, which is why it's a good thing that uh, we found some words from Common Sense Media. <laughs> about digital citizenship, because this will keep me from talking forever. But um, I love this topic. And Common Sense Media's education branch, I love the way they, they put it. They say, learning never stops, and neither does digital citizenship. Digital citizenship is not so different from what we think of as traditional citizenship, being kind, respectful, and responsible and participating in activities that make the world a better place. So teaching our students digital skills and inviting them to reflect on how media and technology affect their daily lives is essential to helping them connect with the world around them. It just so happens that Digital Citizenship Week this year is October 18th through 22nd, near when we're releasing this podcast. But every day is the perfect day to engage our students around these essential life skills. Thank you, Sandy. Um, And on today's episode, I think you're really going to enjoy it. We have a couple guests this time, and we we asked them to come to share their knowledge and expertise about digital citizenship. So today we're going to hear from educator and author Jennifer Lagarde. She's also known as Library Girl Online, and um, she's going to be speaking about developing digital detectives. But first, though, we are going to hear from Georgetown ISD librarian Emily Curtis. Emily is going to share with us how she defines digital citizenship and ways in which she shares it with students and teachers. All right. Hey, Digital Buzz Radio listeners. We have a special guest here with us on our podcast episode where we are talking about digital citizenship and digital literacy. Uh, We have a Georgetown ISD librarian, Emily Curtis, joining us today. So welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Emily, can you tell us a little bit about your background here in Georgetown ISD? So I, this is the beginning of my ninth year in Georgetown. I've been a librarian all those nine years. I was five years with elementary at the old Pickett Library, and now I am going on my fourth year at Tippett Middle School. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us. So my uh, first question for you is, what does digital citizenship mean to you? Um, To me, it's really just an extension of our kind of what we traditionally think of as like physical in-person citizenship. Um, We live so much of our lives online now through like email, social media, how we get and give information to others. Um, 
So digital citizenship is really just extending that out into our global citizenship, you want to say. Um, the questions are the same. How do we treat each other? How do we want to be treated? How can we build a society that respects each other and functions smoothly? Um, the big difference is that the digital world changes so quickly. Technology, um, especially digital technology, is advancing at such an exponential rate. And the abilities of these big tech companies like Google are just astounding and a little bit scary sometimes. Um, it's really a two-edged sword. Like uh, We see these like fast-moving, um, just bad ideas going out there and the spread of misinformation. Um, which is scary and so hard to get uh, like control over because you also have to think about um, like first um, uh, first amendment issues. But then we also on the flip side of that, see kids making like international connections that are authentic and real and meaningful and global changes happening because of that. So to me in a nutshell is um, digital citizenship is learning how to use the power of the internet for our good and for the good of our global community. I love that. And I love how you connected it to just being a citizen in our community that a lot of the actions that we would do as just a normal citizen would hold true when we're online as mm -hmm. a digital citizen. And I also noticed something, you used the term misinformation when you were talking um, a little bit about your answer about digital citizenship, um, which is really cool because when we talked with Jennifer Lagarde yesterday, that was something she mentioned was that um, instead of using the term fake news, that she likes to use the term either miss, mal, or disinformation. So. That was pretty cool. So see, yeah. you're you're right there on cutting edge, right there, right there, right there. <laughs> so Emily, um, I'm going to be asking you the next question. And uh, we were wondering, like, as a librarian, how do you support digital citizenship in the library? So um, digital citizenship, I, I love it. Um, I think it's super important to teach to the kids, especially at the middle school level when they are really starting to be a lot more active online. Um, so I offer several different lessons to classes uh, on digital citizenship, um, including uh, using our school's databases, finding reliable websites, uh, copyright issues, citing sources, uh, building a positive media footprint. Um, with middle schoolers, you have to keep it really simple, uh, keep their attention. So the, the big things I want them to take away are uh, for any information that they see online, whether it's a picture on Instagram or a news article, they have to ask two questions. Who wrote it and why did they write it? And then if you use that information, cite it. <laughs> Tell where you got that information. Um, it's really easy to see a meme or a headline and immediately react to it, but we all need to get in the habit of pausing and reserving judgment till we dig a little deeper. And that starts with these digital natives, these kids whose parents did not grow up with the internet, including myself. I have a current seventh grader. I did not deal with these issues when I was in seventh grade at all. Our digital citizenship was don't join chat rooms with randos. Like that was it. <laughs> that was all we had to think about and worry about. Also having a lot of those conversations on the side with students as they come in, 
they'll come and tell me about things that they saw online or things that they saw on the news and helping them walk through it in real time, evaluating, okay, who said that? Why did they say it? Okay, before you share that information, like let's evaluate the source and then make sure you're telling people where you got that information. Kind of counteracting the whole, if it's on the internet, it's true. Thing. Exactly. exactly. I, love, I love the point that you make about not just who wrote it, but why. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of times we don't take that extra step to really think what was their intention with um, posting that original thing on the, on the website or wherever they found mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I'd love to share with y'all one thing I do in eighth grade because they really are able to really think deeper about that is we do this really just kind of eye-opening lesson about the power of AI. And some of y'all may have seen these resources or not resources, but um, like websites. But if you haven't, you should definitely check them out. The first one I show them is the website, this person does not exist.com. And have y'all seen that before? No. Okay. So this person does not exist is a computer program it's a website you go and every time you hit refresh a new person's face is created by an ai and they look like real people wow like they are 100 they just occasionally you see something in the background that looks a little off but like you could print this picture off and say oh this is my boyfriend this is my girlfriend this is my nephew like and they look like legitimate people so think about the power of social media being able to fake your face that easily and then i show them the videos of barack obama talking where it's not him talking someone has put words in his mouth and it looks and it sounds just like him and then the last thing I show them um, is how you can make a reservation through Google or make a hair appointment. And the other person on the line, they're actually talking to a computer, but it sounds and behaves so much like a human. They don't know it. They think that they're talking to a human. And so just thinking forward, give it five years. What is that technology going to look like? what do we need to do as users of that technology? Like by the time these, these eighth graders that we're talking to about it get to college, it's going to be commonplace. These kids are probably going to figure out how to do it themselves. Like how do we navigate digital citizenship and using that technology wisely and evaluating those sources? It's, I don't know. You know? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. That's really something to ponder. It's very interesting. Yeah. So Emily, I'm going to jump in and kind of related to Heather's question to you, but a little different. We're curious how, what ways you work with teachers to promote digital citizenship. So you, you mentioned with Heather working with students in the library, mm -hmm. but are there things you do with teachers as well that maybe support their growth or even support the growth of their students? through things in their classrooms? Yeah, definitely. So uh, one of the things we as um, a group of librarians this year, uh, we really wanted to focus on educating our teachers on some digital citizenship, uh, especially like copyright and fair use, because those are things that are really applicable to them on a daily basis. Um, so one thing we did was really encourage the powers that be to include that training in like the summer required training that all of us have to do, which it was, which was great. And then uh, we also created kind of a one pager that we now have like shared with all of our teachers and we posted up next to 
um, all of our uh, copy machines and printers that copyright is such a complex and nuanced and ever changing topic. So we wanted to create them something that was kind of a quick, not a cheat sheet, but a quick guide that they could look at and see, okay, what, what, what about this is most applicable to me to help them? Um, because they just don't know. Sometimes they'll use a resource not realizing that they've broken copyright law or, um, use something that they weren't supposed to use. And so just, just educating them. And then also I'm going to start a, a bathroom newsletter called the bottom line that will feature <laughs> along with library resources. It's going to feature some digital citizenship um, tips and info every month. Oh my gosh. The bottom line is hilarious. That's so funny. What a great way to do it too. Like in the bathroom, mm -hmm. you know, people are like taking a break. <laughs> Yeah, you're you know? there anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're there anyway. And so I love that. Um, do you find that as you do these things to support your teachers, does it create conversations with them? Like, do they come to you with questions or does it serve as like a conversation starter at any point? It does. Absolutely. A lot of I've since we since that required training went out this summer and since we put out those um, flyers, I have had a lot more teachers come and ask me and say, hey, is it OK if I copy this? And what, you know, um, what guidelines should I be following when I am using this resource? And then it's helpful too. they turn or they are more empowered to turn around and help their students and um, talk to their students about it. Or if they're not sure, I've actually had a couple of kids come up like sent by their teacher who said, oh, my teacher wanted me to ask, what should I do about this? How can I use this resource in, um, you know, a legal and safe way? So it, it has been uh, starting a lot more conversations, which is great. That is awesome. I, I don't think you can ever have too many conversations mm -hmm. about this because it, it seems to be a moving target as you talked earlier in Heather's question about how things continue to change. So just when you think you know what you need to do, some new technology causes a whole new set of questions. So exactly. thanks for sharing that with us. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our questions for you today, Miss Emily. Um, and thank you for joining us. We uh, were really glad that you spent a little bit of time with us and definitely sounds like you are out there championing, championing, I had a hard time saying that word, championing, uh, championing. Okay. I'm just not going <laughs> to say that word. So you're out there. <laughs> on the forefront of moving digital citizenship forward um, with teachers and students. And that is just such important work and we just can't give up on the cause. Just got to keep working towards it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. I really enjoyed our conversation with Emily regarding how she works with students and teachers on digital citizenship. And I know all of our GIC librarians are equally eager to work with their teachers. So we encourage you to reach out to your campus librarians with digital citizenship questions or collaborations. Now, let's learn some more specifically about digital literacy in the social media age from Jennifer Lagarde, AKA Library Girl. Today we have a special guest on Digital Buzz Radio. 
Jennifer Lagarde is the co-author of Fact Versus Fiction, Teaching Critical Thinking Skills in the Age of Fake News, and has a new book titled Developing Digital Detectives with Darren Hudgens. Jennifer is a lifelong teacher and learner with over 20 years in public education. Her educational passions include leveraging technology to help students develop authentic reading lives, meeting the unique needs of students living in poverty, and helping learners of all ages discern fact from fiction and the information they consume. Jennifer is known as Library Girl on Twitter and her award-winning blog, The Adventures of Library Girl. Follow her at www.librarygirl.net or on Twitter at Jennifer Lagarde. All right, that was a wonderful introduction. And so welcome, Jennifer. We're really excited to have you join us today. Um, Thank this you, I'm excited to be here. Well, good, and we are. We are so happy to have you joining us all the way from the uh, wonderful state of Washington, where it sounds like if your weather is nice and cool and cloudy and cozy, it makes me want to curl up on a sofa and read a really good book. <laughs> that is one of the only downfalls of living here that I have found, that it, every day feels, well, especially in the winter, every day feels like a good cozy up and read a book day as opposed to getting anything else done. Yep. Well, hey, there is nothing wrong with that, right? Like feeling, <laughs> feeling the need to curl up with a book. <laughs> right. Well, in this episode of Digital Buzz Radio, we are going to be focusing on digital citizenship. And you recently released a new book called Developing Digital Detectives, Essential Lessons for Discerning Fact from fiction in the fake news. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your book, uh, why digital citizenship and why digital literacy skills are so important to teach to our students? Sure. Well, um, first of all, let me just say that one of the things we outline in the introduction of the book is why we choose not to use the term fake news, apart from in the title. Um, which was a legacy from our first book that the publisher really wanted us to include to make a connection between the two books. But we choose not to use that term because it's become such a political football. It's just a really easy way for me to try to discredit someone who doesn't believe the same way. They're the same things that I do. If you say something that I don't agree with, I can just call it fake news or whatever. So we have tried to be uh, more precise in our language about what that is. And so all during this interview day, you're going to hear me say things like mis, dis, and mal information to be more precise than just quote unquote fake news. And I mentioned that only because that really is an example of our learning, our evolution over the years between when fact versus fiction came out and then this new book, Developing Digital Detectives, came out. Our first book was really about sounding an alarm to say, hey, y'all, we got a problem and we got to do something about it. Um, and then in the years that followed that, I spent most of my working life working with teachers, librarians, administrators, et cetera, to try to develop lessons and curricula to help them do that. And so this second book is really those lessons. The, that second book is really, if fact versus the fi if fiction is here's the problem and why, then developing digital detectives is here's how to fix it. So the why and the what is the first book and the how. Um, is the second book. And so um, 
I'm grateful for it to come out uh, as for, for no other reason than I was telling somebody yesterday, I feel like for the last six years, I've been doom scrolling for a living. You know, this work is depressing. Uh, it's nice to feel something <laughs> joyful related to this uh, project. So I'm excited to be able to share it finally with everybody. Oh, I love it. Well, I know I'm excited to get a copy of your new book. Um, I have read um, Fact Versus Fiction, and um, I love how you just described it because it sounds like the two of them are almost their companion books. You know, the first one, you kind of learn the why behind it, and then the second one gives you ideas for how to implement and move it forward in your classrooms. Yeah, we found, you know, in Fact Versus Fiction, we we're intentional about trying not to prescribe something, but rather uh, to instead be a, a resource like librarians do all the time in that we wanted to point to the best resources that were already out there and then help teachers figure out how to use them. Um, but what we found in the years that followed is that those resources really, there's a reason why they're not working. Some of the uh, tools that are still the most popular tools for helping kids think about information critically have been around for decades. You know, I always point to the CRAP test which mm -hmm. has been around for almost 20 years now, um, or like some of the hoax websites like the Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus site, which still gets used all the time. That that site is like 25 years old at this point. And, you know, the creators of those resources have the same goals in mind that we do in that they wanted to help kids be information savvy, but they couldn't have conceived of a world in which we were all carrying around super powerful computers in our pockets and accessing information through a tool known as social media. Social media didn't even exist when those tools were created. Mm -hmm. So um, Darren and I just put our thinking caps on and over time began to realize that there were some really important critical elements missing from those resources. Maybe they were great at the time they came out, but they're no longer applicable. And so we really wanted to fill those gaps. Well, thank Thanks you. Thanks for that, Jennifer. Thanks for that clarification on on the term fake news. I I'd heard you before talk about not liking that, and so um, I was even saying to Amy and Heather before the podcast, I was like, "You watch, she's going to tell us fake news is not the best term." So I called <laughs> it. I just want to say that. I love it. I wondered why you all took a drink of your diet coke at the same time. Like maybe you were betting on me when I was going to. I'm just. Joking. Oh no, that's they funny. did not do that. I'm just joking, y'all. <laughs> But, you know, I, I'm, I'm predictable, certainly. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome. Um, what do you think the impact, I mean, we talk a lot about the impact of miss, dis, and malinformation. I'm going to use your term. Yay, gold because, star. Yeah, I, I like it, it too. <laughs> um, what do you think, we talk a lot about the impact of it, you know, kind of in society, large or whatever. But what do you think the impact of, of miss, dis, and malinformation is in education itself. Sure. Well, I am going to start a little bit on the macro to answer that question and say that I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say that I think this is the most important thing that we as educators can be focusing on right now. As educators, we all have, you know, curricula and standards that have to underpin our work. But when I think about 
the major problems that we're facing as a species, as human beings, the types of problems that really can result in war or the destruction of our planet, whether we're talking about climate change or we're talking about poverty or we're talking about racial justice, et cetera. If we were to poll all of your listeners and ask them to identify the most pressing problems that this facing us as human beings right now, and we made that list, the one thing that all of them have in common is that they are made worse and fueled by misdis and malinformation. So if we don't get a handle on this, we have very little hope of being able to deal with those big problems. This to me is the key to a lot of that. So that is the macro society answer. But when we think about it in terms of educators, we're seeing those battles play out in school board meetings right now. Never has it felt like a more dangerous time to be an educator where we feel like we have to police the things we say, the books that are on our shelves, and look at our lessons for fear that something we might say or do, even if they're grounded in sound pedagogical practices, even if they are grounded in our equity work, even if we know that they are 100% provable, verifiable facts, we are live in fear of saying or doing something that is going to result in um, not just, I don't even just say teachers are afraid of being reprimanded. I think they are rightfully in fear of being the focus of a battle that draws the attention away from what's right for students and onto um, other more nefarious agendas. It's, it's a very difficult time to be an educator. So educators are feeling the impact of all of this right now. In the, I mean, I worked with a group just yesterday who talked about um, trying to teach some information literacy in their school and getting pushback from parents, et cetera. And so we really wanted to do it in a way that doesn't touch on politics so that that way we could avoid the emotional triggers that inflame those kinds of arguments and make it impossible for people to really think critically or to participate in them. So hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you so much for elaborating on that. And it's interesting because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of conversations we've even been having as we talk about digital citizenship lessons and things like mm -hmm. that and wanting to be able to teach the the skills and the critical thinking without also, you know, stepping in a minefield. Right. Someone else's minefield, one that we don't even see. Right. So mm -hmm. thank you for that. Um, and I think Heather's got the next question. Yeah. Um, so our district has a focus on social emotional learning, and mm -hmm. um, I noticed that your book, the new your new book, Developing Digital Detectives, mentions a connection between mis, dis, malinformation, and um, social emotional learning. And I was wondering if you could talk more about that connection. Yeah. Actually, I'm so glad you asked that question because really that connection, the overlap of information literacy and social emotional learning is to me one of the reasons why traditional information literacy um, protocols and instructional strategies have failed because those do not include the first really important step of having kids think about and recognize how information makes them feel because as we talked about uh, earlier, you know, once those emotions are triggered and your brain goes into that fight or flight mode, then it doesn't matter how many crop tests and cars checklists and rad cab protocols and all the others that you've memorized. 
your brain is being driven by emotion. And we all know what that feels like. We've all signed on to social media and been so outraged by whatever we saw that we just had to, in 240 characters, share that outrage with the world. And even though we're really smart and we um, know better than to do that, when the emotion drives, then the brain takes a back seat, right? And so one of the things that we wanted to do that we've been very intentional about doing is that everything starts and ends for us in SEL in this book. We created what we call four lenses, which are ways for um, kids and adults, frankly, to look at information, lenses to look through information at. And the first one is the triggers lens, where we begin by thinking about how does this information make me feel? And that can start with really, really little learners who aren't even reading yet. Or if we can get them in the habit of thinking about that when they're all sitting on the carpet and we're reading a book together, instead of asking them what they see or what they notice, ask them how it makes them feel. Because you'll get the answers to those other questions. They'll tell you what they see and what they notice in order to explain those feelings, but we'll develop a habit of them asking that, how does this make me feel? And then as they get older, we can graduate to questions like, what do those feelings make me want to do? Is that the best choice? This doesn't make me feel bad or angry or sad or upset or any of these things, but do I see something in there that might make somebody else feel that way? And as they get even older, who might want me to feel that way? What are they hoping I will do? Who benefits if I'm angry, if I'm afraid? All of that builds on that first fundamental disposition of recognizing that emotion, that excuse me, the information triggers an emotion and that emotion often drives us to take action, which isn't the smartest, the best or the healthiest. So we've created a crosswalk in the book between the castle core competencies and information literacy. And all of our lessons, mini lessons and unit plans contain um, aspects of SEL to help kids of all ages think about um, that that piece, that component of it, because to us, that is what's really missing. That's the first thing that's missing from those traditional information literacy um, products and protocols. And, and we think that's in a huge piece of it. And I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think so many of us grew up without, like you said, without the social media and those things, and we were never taught. And, yeah. and you're right. We never taught about the emotions and how that drives us and how that can, you know, lead us to do things that we wouldn't normally do and hide behind that screen and that response. Right. But if we're not aware and thinking of that, then we're certainly not preparing those students in our classrooms, you know, to deal with those emotions as well. Yeah, and and let me just say this too. I find that connection super empowering. Like, because, you know, as we're recording this interview, Congress is hearing testimony about how, you know, um, social media giants privilege profits over people and have actually like given bonuses to people who have developed ways for false content, misdis and malinformation to spread because that is because of the engagement that those kinds of posts, you know, um, generate, which of course then generates money. Um, So it's easy for us to think of the tech giants as the enemy, but really all of that is based on decades and decades and decades of research on human behavior. Tech changes, human behavior is remarkably predictable and they base their actions on what they're predicting we're going to do. So if the problem is really inside us, 
and so is the solution. We don't have to wait for some tech giant to decide that helping humanity is better than traveling to the moon on the weekend. You know, we have to be the ones to do it. If we have, we can control our emotional responses to the, these things, I think that we, they will have to change the order of business because we'll no longer be helping them profit over harming us. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. I mean, just saying that really empowers us to know that we can make that change. We don't have to wait for someone else to do that. So thank you for that little nugget of information. It's what keeps me going every day, right? Otherwise, I get to your That's wonderful. <laughs> well, and Jennifer, I know you've already kind of talked a lot about many of your core beliefs and, and some of the answers you have um, already shared with us in the in this interview. But um, are there any other core beliefs in your book, Developing Digital Detectives, that you would want to talk about or share with us and why those would be important to our teachers and our students? Sure. So, you know, we started the book with a set of core beliefs to sort of lay out there what what, what motivates us. You know, um, one of the things I hear, especially from secondary learners, is that nothing's true out there, that it, everybody's lying to you all the time, because that's a very easy way to just not have to take any responsibility for your own actions um, related to information. But the reality is, is that, that there are facts everywhere, and that's one of our core beliefs, that there are facts everywhere. And it, it right now we're living in a moment that the World Health Organization has called an infodemic, and it may be harder to find the facts during an infodemic, but they are there. And as educators especially, it's really up to us to highlight them and amplify them as opposed to the false content that's out there. Um, the second core belief uh, that we talk about is that um, not all, there might be two sides to every story, but not every side is worthy of critical debate. So we can't spend time arguing with people, for example, who think the world is flat. All that does is legitimize their false information. So it's okay to walk away and not have give both sides equal time if the other side is not really rooted in facts. Critical debate is really important when facts are involved, but when people are abandoning facts, it is not really being fair and balanced to give both sides equal time when one side, all you're doing is amplifying false content and spreading this misinformation. So that's the second thing. Um, the other thing we've already talked about, which just is, is that we believe misdis and malinformation are human problems, and so therefore human beings are the solution, not technology. Even though we spend a lot of time talking about technology in the book, um, uh, every algorithm, every avatar, every blue check mark, every account we follow, even the bots are all um, behind them are all humans who are hoping that other humans will react in a certain way to their content. So as humans, it's up to us to control our own behavior. Um, and then the last thing just is, is that we called our book Digital Detectives because we really do feel like, well, number one is like the biggest fans ever of shows like Forensic Files and that kind of thing. It was just really fun for us to create a theme around that. We just really love that. But also that detective skill of gathering clues and then following your curiosity to engage in a true investigation are really the skills that are necessary for parsing credibility online these days. There's no checklist that's going to do it. A checklist <laughs> requires about the same type of neurological functioning as a word search. And our information landscape is requires much deeper thinking than that. So 
we want to move away from identifying things and a piece of information towards investigating things. And so we feel like our world needs digital detectives now more than ever, which means that we need educators more than ever who are willing to help kids grow into that role. Yeah, and I I see like those those detectives as you were describing that with with investigating and looking at those clues that that really elevates their critical thinking, um, mm -hmm. which is definitely something that we need to grow. Um, you know, and and everyone, you know, that we need to all be as humans critical thinkers out there um, to just well, just and navigate. frankly, I'm going to be honest and say that in a school system that values the right answer teaching kids to focus on finding and deriving the right questions is harder work because we're out of practice doing that. You know, we squelch questions out of kids around the third grade when they're gonna, when the tests start really mattering, you know? So we have to um, pivot our thinking in terms of what we wanna value out of our kids and questioning, being curious and asking the right questions. Um, is really got to be the focus of this work rather than finding the right answer. Information literacy to me is not a binary. It's not a, is this real or is this fake? We have to decide whether or not we can trust this enough to engage with it. And that requires deeper questions. Um, and so that work is a, is a new way of thinking about information literacy, I think. And would, would you say with your thoughts on, on help, um, what you were just talking about with, helping students be better questioners. Um, would sure. you say that that would also kind of mean that we need uh, students to become more inquiry driven? Yes. Yeah. You know, I mentioned our first lens as being the triggers lens. Our second lens, and these are, let me just back this up and say that these don't have to be taken in a linear fashion. We um, address them in a linear way as a scaffold, but right, you know, scaffolds are temporary. They're meant to come down. Eventually, the goal of all education has to be independence. So we want kids, all learners, to be able to eventually be able to look at something and think which lens might lens itself better to this information. But to begin with, we apply them in order, starting with the tri triggers lens. Then we move on to what we call the access lens, which is to think deeply about how the device we're using plays a role in our ability to parse credibility, because we know that the vast majority of human beings alive, in particular kids, and in particular poor kids, rely on phones, mobile devices to access information versus the desktop or laptops that we use at school. And not only does information look very different on those two advice devices, the same story from the same source about the uh, posted on the exact same day can look very different on your web browser, on your computer versus in an app on your phone. So that's the first piece of why mobile devices, the access lens is important. But the second piece to get to your um, question, Amy, is about how all of the peripheral stuff, what we call the community reading experience, which are the likes, the shares, the comments, all of the ways in which our devices are set up to maximize engagement, kids have to think deeply and critically about how those things can influence your opinion and reaction or your urge to trust or share content. If my friends are all liking and sharing this, how does that affect my urge to trust and share? If this particular thing has gone viral, how does that uh, affect my urge to trust and share? Are the comments on this app being organized in chronological order or are the ones that are the most salacious and triggering rising to the top because that's how the app prioritizes them? 
all of those are inquiries that kids have to make when they're thinking about the device. So, and if we as educators only teach them how to do things on a desktop, we're failing to really arm them for the world that they live in. So that's the access lens. The forensics lens is number three, which deals with what I was talking about, those questioning skills, how to develop good questions around whatever content you're looking at. And then the last lens we call the motives lens, which is to try to walk a mile in the shoes of the person who may have created this and what they're hoping that we will do as a result. All those things are underpinned by that first lens, the triggers. But that to me, like that's how we try to engage kids in a robust inquiry-driven process around information as opposed to the traditional checklist. Well, thank you. And thank you for going through and, you know, kind of describing um, the lenses, those four lenses that you use in your book. So Jennifer, I'm wondering, Obviously, we want to look at your book and get real specific examples, but could you give, uh, just to give our listeners a taste of it, an example of a way that that you teach students how to identify mis, dis, or malinformation? Sure, sure. So, um, first of all, I just I always have to add this disclaimer, I feel because I feel so like skeezy about schlepping my book, you know, um, I always add the disclaimer that Darren and I make about 11 cents a copy when the book is sold, and we have to split that. So <laughs> neither of us are getting rich. Like we're not here trying to make money off of this book. We really have devoted our lives to this because we feel like it's the most important thing we can be doing right now. So all of that to say, as I point people towards the book, that's why, you know, um, and I encourage people to ask their librarians to buy it so that that way lots of people can get it without having to um, line my pockets with five and a half cents. But <laughs> that being said, um, our book really is set up into two sections. The first half is about teacher learning, where we unpack those lenses and help teachers, educators, librarians understand um, all the research that goes into why those components are really necessary and help them deeply understand the lens so that they can teach them. You know, you have to understand the content before you can teach it. And each of those chapters contains many lessons. And by the way, one thing I guess I should mention is that our book only contains one URL. And that goes to a website, a resource repository we call the Evidence Locker, where all of the mini lessons live, all of the unit plans live, et cetera, so that hopefully we'll never have an out-of-date link. So that way you don't go typing in some link in our book and find that it no longer exists. So in the, the that first half of the book, those mini lessons there as sort of a way to illustrate those, the lens in action are really sort of do tomorrow kind of things. You know, they're really easy for you to implement right away. Um, and then the second half of the book are what we call case files or unit plans in which we've taken a story um, that we've found and then we wrap package it in a case file for students to explore and to to make a determination a verdict as to whether or not this information can be trusted within the case file in addition to all sorts of evidence for them to explore there's also what we call the detective's notebook, which is full of, I mean, essentially worksheets and templates, et cetera, for teachers to use if they want kids to practice a specific skill related to the content in the case file, et cetera. 
some of those resources are digital. So I, I, all of them are digital in so much as you could put them in a Google Classroom, you know, folder in a Google Classroom and send them to students to explore electronically. Or um, they are all done, with the exception of videos, as PDFs, so they could be printed as well if you want to do them in an analog way. All of that to say that we want to get kids digging in with information and applying those lenses and not just learning about them theoretically. And we've selected stories for every grade span, elementary, middle, and high school that are not related to politics, but that are related to things that those grade span level kids might be uh, interested in. Because if, when I talk to kids of all ages, when I ask them, hey, where do you get your news? Their answer is, I don't watch the news. I'm not, you know, like I'm not a news, they don't see themselves in that way, right? But if I ask them about a current event, they know about it. They are getting news sometimes from their parents, sometimes from TikTok videos, sometimes from what their friends are sharing, et cetera. And so our goal is to help kids think about how to apply these skills to the information they're consuming every day so that they will then transfer to news as opposed to the other way around. Because traditional information literacy is about the news and about like sort of research information. We teach them how to parse credibility there, but then that doesn't transfer to the real information they consume every day. And so we want to flip that on its ear and do it backwards. Um, because I think we'll have a better chance of capturing them that way. Did that answer your question at all? It did. Thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank good. you very much. Good. I love mm -hmm. that too, because I feel like I found myself before like, oh, I saw it on TikTok, so it must be true, or it's yeah. on the internet, so it's true. So helping teach them, you know, where news is coming from is, I think that's very important to, let, you know, identify that it's all around us, like you mentioned, and it's coming from not just the actual news yeah. channel. <laughs> I think that's just a harder, like it's a heavier lift when we teach them a skill in isolation and hope mm -hmm. they'll apply it to real life. I think the lift is easier when we do it the opposite way. Opposite yeah. way. When we teach them the skills in real life, then I think they apply more to the academic, you know, research, right. et cetera. So yes. um, that's our approach. Well, we had a question for you, but I feel like you might have already answered it. So um, it was, do you have any advice for teachers on how to get started incorporating digital literacy into their classrooms, but sure. um, I don't know if you have anything I, I else to speak to that. I, I will. I mean, I'll just reiterate and say that I think, I think sometimes given the world that we live in, there's a natural and understandable urge to just put your head down, focus on things that are um, non-controversial and easy, et cetera, and, and just leave it to somebody else to do this work that might feel a little scary given the world that we live in. And I get that urge. I totally do. You know, uh, as a librarian, I've lived through many a book challenge. I get the urge to look at a book and think, I'm just not putting that on the shelf because I don't want to have to deal with the parents. I get the urge or any a community member who might not understand why a kid would need this, you know? So I, I get that. Um, but we weren't hired to serve our needs. We were hired to serve the needs of our kids and our community, many of whom, far too many of whom, do not have advocates for their learning needs at home 
if we're not going to be brave, who will, right? If it's not us, then who is it? I don't know who that is. With that being said, what we've tried to do is provide resources that makes that bravery uh, feel a little safer, to do it in a way that doesn't feel like you are um, having to take a huge risk because we all need our paychecks to help, you know, keep our lights on, et cetera. And I understand educators who are fearful of losing their jobs, et cetera. So I hope that our book provides that kind of ladder um, to the work in a way that helps them feel supported. That's great. Thank you. All right, Jennifer. So as we start wrapping up our interview, I just wanted to uh, just kind of throw out that general question of, is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners? I don't think so. I mean, obviously, I um, hope that folks will get a hold of the book in some way, and I hope that they find it helpful. And if I can support them in some way, um, you know, reach out to me on Twitter or through my website, etc. I'm. It's an honor to be able to support educators when they reach out for help. So please don't hesitate to do that. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today. Uh, we really, really appreciate your time and all of your helpful information. And uh, you. we, you're welcome. And we will be sure to post information about your books on our blog post um, and also um, about this episode. So stay tuned for all those details. Yay. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jennifer. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of our podcast for today. We hope you enjoyed listening and learning from our guests as much as we did. Students are online now more than ever, so teaching them how to use technology thoughtfully and responsibly is an essential part of their social and emotional development and academic success. Be sure to check out our blog post at it's bit.ly forward slash GISD DL blog. That's all lowercase bit dot ly forward slash g-i-s-d d-l blog b-l-o-g for resources discussed in today's episode we'll catch you on the next episode of digital buzz radio thank you for joining us today digital buzz radio is a production of the georgetown isd digital learning team music titled innovation by john yasut obtained from Pixabay under a license for non-commercial use. Don't forget to subscribe to the Digital Buzz Radio podcast on Spotify or Anchor, or look for us on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at G-I-S-D DigiLearn. That's G-I-S-D D-I-G-I-L-E-A-R-N. Join us next time for the latest buzz about all things digital learning.